From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. You're about to listen to our new show, The Groundsman Conversations, which is brought to you by Sports Digital. Sports Digital is a cloud-based presentation platform for rights holders, agencies, and brands that brings your story to life within immersive, exciting, easy-to-create proposals and presentations. Used by more than 50% of teams in the top leagues in the US, Sports Digital's technology enables partners to ditch PowerPoint and Keynote and create powerful presentations of their own that provide tracking analytics to help you understand the performance of your prospecting, cutting through the crowded marketplace to win business. So go to sportsdigital.com to book your demo. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of Are You Not Entertained? The award-winning Are You Not Entertained? Um, brought to you, of course, by our wonderful sponsors, uh, Sports Digital. I was using one of their presentations the other day, and the client was just blown away. Uh, you should really check it out. I think it is uh, amazing tech. You know, people are decked out now. They're PowerPointed out. This thing really makes a difference. I don't usually do this kind of stuff, but I'm just saying it because I actually saw it in action. So ha- have a wee look. Um, anyway, um, we it's Giles and I today. How are you doing, Giles? Oh yeah, hello. I'm I'm good. I'm 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 good. Although I've been uh, having to evacuate a child from Sri Lanka, which has tested me to the limit, and I'm not a technical person, and WhatsApp going down. So. Um, yeah, that that's been my real life, but I'm much more looking forward to getting getting stuck in into to the podcast. Isn't it funny? Uh, we are still without our uh, third musketeer, who um, I believe is on his way towards um, the Masters, as is his want. But uh, people will know he's been in the, in Australia to see his daughter for the last couple of months, and I was just reflecting, Giles. He's been away for a couple of months. James Bond dies in a movie. And the whole world goes to hell in a handcart. It's all linked, man. It's it all makes sense now. It well, all makes it, sense. It's very interesting. A friend of mine uh, knows Barbara Broccoli quite well, and uh, they've been oh. doing some. They've been doing some auditions, and um, well, I'm just <laughs> going to leave it there. Just leave it there. <laughs> Have you got a little bit of a cold or something, Giles? Are you a little bit under the weather? No, I've been doing Barry White, um, Barry White auditions all weekend as well. So I'm <laughs> going down to a kind of gravelly voice. <laughs> Perfect. I think that'll do great for a certain demographic of our audience. But that's uh, that's that's wonderful. Listen, my friend. Um, before we bring on a, a really interesting guest, which I think is very pertinent and germane in these moments, um, I want to ask you your views about what is going on in this world of ours. What's catching your eye? What do you think we should comment on? Because uh, it is a, just an amazing time for sport. Well, it is, and it continues to be. It, I don't know if we're in a post-COVID era, but we're certainly in a, a dealing with COVID era. And then we've got the, all the geopolitics that are, are really roaring around. And as I said, even you know my, my daughter being caught up in geopolitics in Sri Lanka because of full, uh, food and fuel prices and shortages yep, and yep. Un- unrest there. And, and all of this goes on, and suddenly in the sort of Simon Barnes-esque way, doesn't sport sometimes feel, A, futile, but B, very important and comforting. 
And yes, of course, it is also affected um, with its own sort of slings and arrows of, of outrageous fortune. So a lot going on. I, I actually wanted to ask you a question because with our guests coming on later on, clearly Italy and football, and, and football, it's going to be a big part of the, of the show. But you, there's a sort of sense, and I know you've been using um, social media to talk about this. There seems to be a growing um, build-up, a program perhaps of um, about Qatar and the World Cup. Mm-hmm. What, what's yep. your take? What's your take on it, and where can this go? Yeah, I think that is a great point. Um, I just watch it every day, and you know, I have to declare an interest. I, I've had connections over the last eighteen months with um, the, the people out there. I think I've mentioned that in previous podcasts, and we talked about doing some stuff together in sport tech, and, and then. COVID and, and the World Cup and kind of like overtook that. But I am close to these guys, so that is the context people should recognise these comments. Um, I, I've just seen that uh, there's been a ramping up of the, the anti-Qatar um, vitriol um, by a certain group of very, very influential journalists uh, that write for heavy newspapers, whether it's the New York Times or, or the broadsheets in the UK, who, um, for 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 obvious reasons, now that you know you've had the World Cup draw now and, and and everybody's eyes are on it, are starting to say this is an incredibly small country. The deaths, the human rights, um, the rainbow flags. Um, I just feel um, I understand them. I understand them. I always say, well, you know, if you're going to be very moralistic about everything, where do you draw the line? I think I've been consistently proven probably right and all of that it's very difficult to draw the line um, and make judgments about who is on the right side of morality and who isn't uh, I'm not somebody that, that ever is going to ju- judge I th- I'd like to say as I've said before things like taking a World Cup to the Middle East I, I would like to think would improve these these areas not just for human rights and women's rights and things like that out there but for democracy and also uh, Arab-Israeli uh, relations so I'm not going to unload in Qatar but um I would uh, counsel them to be very aware of a boulder that I believe has started rolling down a hill. Um, And, you know, uh, I hope they're not underestimating how big that can get. When you get the new head of the Norwegian FA comes out and very clearly says you shouldn't have got this. Um, It's started. And, and, you know, FIFA have come back and they'd roll out all the people to to knock her down, to shout her down. I think it was the guy from the Honduras FA that was sent out to say, what are you talking about? Um, I just, my, my friends, and I think there are, I have got some friends out in Qatar. I, I, I would I would suggest to them to really have a close look now and, and be paranoid, only the paranoid survive. That's what I think, Giles. Isn't it, isn't it interesting that both FIFA and IOC that... Both reside in in Switzerland and both have similar kind of structures and hierarchies, but based on the old model, is that both are having to learn that the new realpolitik of, you know, the bidding days of of the Olympic cities is now, it's changing. It's had to change because maybe the morality doesn't stand up to it, and I think they were so uncensored for so long that they could really do what they like. And, and you look at both FIFA and IOC, I mean, some of the scandals that they've had to endure over the last 40 years are, are genuinely pretty shocking. And that will have to change. And I think, you know, we, we've talked a lot about both FIFA and IOC on the podcast over the years. I'd love to see what happens if, if we could fast forward 20 years to see 
what the Olympics, what the structure of FIFA, what the roles are, etc. Because mm. I think that I think the edifices, in fact, sort of broaden that even. Let's really broaden it. All the things that we grew up with, the kind of the the foundation stones of society, which if you were British, but it would be true of any country, which might be the church, it might be the national broadcaster, it might be um, government. All of those hierarchies have had and endured an enormous amount of change and stress testing because the governance wasn't fit for purpose. And I think the big sports governing bodies are going through the, the same thing now. Um, you look at the British royal family, and I am an ardent royalist. You're 100% royalist. correct. I, I am an ardent royalist, and I am brought up, as people could probably say, you know, could probably tell the sort of place I went to school. For those who are not British, I went to a, what's called a public school. There's a certain aristocratic elitism to those institutions. And I never thought I'd say this, but you're, you're kind of seeing a change now that would I put a, a lot of money on a monarchy and an aristocracy in the United Kingdom being around in 50 years, as much as I can sort of parade that around and go, oh, that's a good idea, it's good for the history, it's good for the, good for the, um, the tourism dollar it's looking harder and harder to justify. And this is a bit of a preamp, a sort of I've gone off on a tangent in here, but I sort of think that's what's happening in sport I don't as think well. It is a, I don't think it is a tangent. As you say, it's happening in sport as well. You know, I, I would put it under the heading, uh, are they tone deaf? You know, um, I, I, I too, uh, I've got no issue with the royal family. Got a lot of respect for that woman. Um, however, I mean, yeah, but however, walking down that church, with Andrew on our sleeve the other day, you know, where are her advisors? Anybody but him. Anybody but him. But no, uh, no. I, it's, it's the same thing with Gianni Infantino in Doha getting the audience to to chant Qatar, Qatar, then FIFA, 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 as if it was a primary six class, you know? And, and you know, you you do hear things where you say, what? I mean, are you that isolated in an ivory tower that you don't realise that's utterly tone deaf? And, and I believe that the biggest threat to empires is, is always from the inside. They usually implode rather than explode. And um, that's what I just mean about everything. You, and you, you name it correctly. There's a lot of institutions that have been going on in kind of like, you know, cruise control mode for 50 years, half a century, that I don't think that are moving up and down the, the gears proactively enough now. And the sports governing bodies are certainly one of them. Well, I'll give you an example. In the uh, 1960s in the United Kingdom, the popularity rating, if you like, the approval rating for the high street banks uh, in terms of respectability, was in the high 90%. I, these were the absolute bastions of, of, of society. Your bank manager was someone that you would trust. The, one of the problems that banks have now, including my former employer, is that they have absolutely no approvals. You know, it's down in the 20s because of previous actions and what happened in the global financial crisis, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Is that what... Whilst people roll their eyes at governance and regulation because it's very difficult to, to work within that world of everything being pen-pushing and form-filling, it's, it's all a result of massive um, moral redundancy in all of these big uh, um, institutions. And as you say, I think tone deaf is absolutely right. If you don't have empathy, if you don't understand how to listen, you don't move forward. And the world has changed and is changing. And, you know, there's, I don't want to get political, but 
we have a politician in this country called Jacob Rees-Mogg, who is of another era, which in of Dreadful. itself is... It's offensive. It, 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 now it is and offensive. And I'm a Tory. And I'm right. a Tory. It, it's offensive because he doesn't seem to have any sense of what goes on in the real world. And, and you've seen that in FIFA. We've seen it in the IOC. We've seen it in people going on junkets on, you know, I'm not going to name the rugby unions particularly, but they, <laughs> there was one union in particular where really to be a, a union member and to be on the committee meant that you and your lady wife, as it would have been in those days, um, got to go on the tours with a particular team. And that was the junket. Yeah, and sure, when, that was, sure. when that was suggested not to be a good idea, there was uproar. And you think, God, is this how we're trying to govern govern sports? So what you've well, seen with Qatar, it's, I find it fascinating because we're going through this like, zeitgeist change. Yeah, and, 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 you know, everybody says to me, well, can they change in time? Uh, can they adjust? Can they get the right different type of people? And I, I, I always kind of like say nothing or very little because they can't. They don't. That's not the way to do it. The way to do it is is look. I've, I picked out a couple of things for your comment, Giles. About you know, I didn't think we were going to speak about this, but I had them anyway. You know, um, you've got women's football, soccer. Um, you had a, a women's soccer game in Spain that that, that attracted a hundred thousand. You know, you've had the women's um, cricket. Um, you have our old friend Dan Porter over time. You know, we had him on and we talked about how he was upsetting the basketball colleges. Uh, he's now done another new league on seven, uh, against seven uh, football, American football. Um, and, and, and you know, you, you see the new kind of people that are coming into sport. They're, they're PhDs in physics and maths and they're, they're doing it. These people are coming round the outsides um, and, and the, the the best example I can give to you is our wonderful friends at the PTO, Sam Renouf. You know, they are funded, uh, I could remind people, by Sir Michael Moritz of Sequoia, the the leading uh, venture capitalist of his generation. Um, they've just done another funding round, uh, what we would call um, a Series A or Series A+. And, you know, the interesting comment was this, coming back to what we said about the way sponsorship itself is always also changing. They've been, they, they've, um, they've got an investor called Acuity. It's New York based health care uh, investor fund. And here's a quote that, 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 that to, to the ones that I know don't want to hear this, the, the exposure and branding guys and sponsorship. Um, why did they invest in the PTO? Which remember is a challenger league for triathlon. We believe Acuity's healthcare expertise will assist in our goal of creating a more health and wellness conscious community by providing access to innovative healthcare technologies. Uh, we are excited about not only the enormous potential of the business, but also our ability to leverage this platform for the distribution of outcome changing health tech products and services. They're selling to that community using the PTO as a distribution channel. It's not about awareness. And, you know, that's all I want to say about this. The new people, the ones that have to start afresh, they don't have any legacy revenues. This is the way they are doing it, Giles. Absolutely. And you just said it, the words are channel and distribution. So you you, you figure out what the triathlon audience is, and PTO have been very smart on their data analytics, so they know they know their audience. And therefore, acuity understanding this is a way for them to channel and distribute. It's perfect, and it is it is the new lingua franca. 
of, of, of the sports world. And it's interesting you were saying that as well about physics and sport. I know you're very involved with a couple of brilliant technology businesses, as I am with Sportable, which is looking at the whole game of rugby union and rugby league. But, you know, there's there's a bunch of them out there. There's Clipped, our friends from Clipped. There's Wingfield. There's a whole lot of people who are looking at data on the pitch or on the, on the court or, you know, on the live performance in order to improve, whether it's through injury um, in zone seven and all of those areas, both not just from a kind of its user experience, but more to make the business case. So you said you sent a very funny Twitter, I think, the other tweet the other day about, oh, no, it was LinkedIn, I think, but um, I do read your stuff. I'm I'm the one that does. And um, and <laughs> about the physics, the, the physicians and the nerds and the mathematicians. These are the guys who are going to be having their... And girls. Their, and, and girls. girls. Uh, I think guy, guys is a kind of everything comment. Oh, yeah, it be, is. Yeah, you're right. I, you're I, right might, I, might, I might be wrong. Um, is These are the people who are going to inherit the sports world over the next 25, 30 years. I, I think so. You know, um, and, and, you know, when you see all the changes coming around and um, I, I always say in the, in the kind of like uh, business courses that I teach and things like that, when when kids ask, you know, how, how do I get into sport? I say, what are you studying? And then they'll tell me and, you know, some will be from a science background and some will be from a, an arts and, and humanities background. And, and they're, they're waiting for the right answer. And I say, well, here's the good news. And I put up a slide of um, what I call the, 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 the modern data scientist, um, which, you know, has got four quadrants and, and there's heavy um, maths and engineering and coding um, that goes along to uh, the ability to communicate, to see insights. Uh, it goes along to soft skills like EQ and the ability to win your argument with persuasion. And I sit and I just say to them, look, you know, it's, it's all of these things. Um, and, and, and that's what I believe will change sport. There is a younger generation of young people um, that I believe are, I, I think this generation is hungrier. They understand, coming back to your point about institutions dying, they understand that our world, whether you call it Bretton Woods and the financial world or the monarchy or the BBC or the IOC or FIFA, we've kind of messed up. Our generation kind of messed up and we're about to leave the stage the millennials probably thought they could stay on our coattails and they might be the unluckiest generation of the lot. Gen Z say, look, we got to do it ourselves." So they're getting skilled up. They are amazing in using the encyclopedia that's at their fingertips called the internet. They, their ability to, to look up stuff in, in a flash is astonishing. And then the really good ones can turn it around um, synthesize it uh, uh, and, and tell you with beautiful communication what the key points are. And, and you know, I work with a lot of young kids uh, in the sport tech companies I work with. And, you know, every day I'm just, you know, gobsmacked at how good they are. And that's why I'm an optimist, Giles. Yeah, and it, it is exciting because um, this is a, whether evolution, revolution, it's, 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 um, it's change happening through the generations. And we're living in the middle. And you're right. I think we're being slowly exited um, out stage left, and mm. back in we'll be we'll be in the hopefully in the the royal box clap, um, clapping the the next <laughs> generation through. And I, I'm all I'm all for the volavant and the blazer if if I can if I can get that ticket, um, only because I've served enough in my time. <laughs> yeah, Giles. Let's um, before we bring the guest on. Let's uh, let's take a moment to thank everybody that voted for us. 
um, in the, the 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 podcast awards. We were lucky enough to win that, um, and uh, I, I'm personally astonished that you know where we've got to um, in our journey. Um, well, so I think many what, great. I, I agree, and I think what's interesting is there's some great podcasts out there. Yes, um, yes. Some who were shortlisted, some who didn't enter. They're all good, or uh, no, that's not true. Some are shit, but some are very good. We are we are served well in this industry with some wonderful um, sport podcasts. I think, though, again, something that you've commented on that's interesting, and in fact, you've taught me about, is about the size. You know, the first question you always ask: how many how many people listen to this show? And you have been very clear from the outset, and I think it's important not just for sports podcasts, but for any podcast, is to understand that what we've got is a weight of audience, and that's where you get mm. the real results. Yeah. And I think um, the, the thing that's been interesting to me is that so many people have been kind enough to comment to us to say well done, um, including from those who have been shortlisted. Um, but what is interesting is it. I don't, you know, we've both been, <laughs> this is not our first rodeo. We've been around for a while. There isn't anyone I, I, I know who doesn't know about the, the, the business, sport business podcast we're doing. Um, it's not a global audience of 500 million. It doesn't need to be. But it's been very humbling, I have to say. Um, looking forward to seeing you to raise a, a small glass of Prosecco. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I said a couple of weeks ago uh, on here, that I think that our colleagues uh, doing the same thing we are doing uh, have really moved the conversation and the bar much higher in, in the business of sport. Um, uh, so all, all of us, in some ways, deserve that award. Um, Dylan uh, Pugh and his team, uh, got to give them credit for deciding to make a thing out of this. They publicised it so well. Um, they've taken advertising out. They, you know, they had some amazing people on the award show. Michael Johnson, you know, the 200, 400 meter uh, Olympian. Um, it was it was done really, really well. But I, I would want to take this point about advertisers. You know, uh, there was this article that talked about how efficient podcasts were going to be in terms of getting to your audience. Um, we've got a relatively small audience, um, but I cannot think of any more efficient way than to get around a podcast like ours if you want to get to the decision makers in the sports industry. It's it's a B2B sponsorship, no doubt about that, but you get everybody. You get everybody. Because uh, as you say, Giles, nobody doesn't know are you not entertained anymore. And, and that for me is, is my awards. The fact that, you know, who would have thought? Um, uh, but, you know, uh, well done to everybody. I said very publicly to, to Nick Meacham the other day that uh, I think he's kicked on as well now. The last couple of months has been outstanding output. Um, Sportico, um, can you imagine beating them? Uh, you know, uh, there's just a lot of them. And, and I would like all sponsors, when you're thinking about your marketing mix, um, to think a little bit about the, the, the getting around these kind of shows that are free. They're free because they're our sponsors. Um, we're very lucky. We've got new ones coming on. We get asked a lot about sponsorship around what's going to happen in September with Are You Not Entertained? Um, think about uh, podcasts because it is a very good ROI in my in my opinion. Absolutely. And that seems like a very good segue um, for you, Roger, to... Um introduce our next guest who is absolutely at the very beating heart of, of the sport business world yep 
Uh, we welcome back to the show. I think he was in season one, Fausto Zanaton of Tifosi. Uh, Fausto's an ex-investment banker. I think it was with Goldman. And he set up his own company called Tifosi, which very interestingly in its early form was about, um, I would call it the crowdfunding of uh, bonds uh, around um, football clubs, whether that was QPR or Rangers or Stevenage, where um, the club could raise money by them um, basically getting everybody to, to, to chip into what was a, a regulated uh, financial instrument. Uh, during COVID, um, he had to pivot a little bit or was probably asked to pivot a little bit because he got involved in what he will call more classic advisory merchant banking, investment banking, advising some takeovers, some very big takeovers, um, getting involved in a SPAC with Gianluca Vialli, a SPAC that I believe um, um, certainly was involved with uh, the bid for Chelsea with Candy. Um, that I don't I think they've been eliminated. We can ask about that now. Um, Fausto has a strong view about Many of the things we talk about, Giles, about finance, return on capital, the increasing cost of capital, interest rates, rolling over debt, um, and the valuations, the valuations of sports assets. So um, why don't we bring him in and see what he's got to say for himself? Fausto Zeniton, welcome back to Are You Not Entertained? Hi, Roger. Great to be back on. Great stuff. Let me introduce you to my friend, Giles Morgan, who will kick us off. Faster, it's great to meet you. I wasn't around in uh, Series 1. Roger hadn't found me. He's still <laughs> ruining that decision to bring me into Series 2, but we, we move on. But I, I know all about you. I know that you've been such a, a major part of sports finance for, for, for a good long time. I'm, I'm intrigued. You as an individual, personally, what is your own love of sport? Where where did it come from? What's it all about that that made you make that move from from traditional finance into sport finance? Where, where was the passion? Uh, I've always been a massive fan. I, I grew up in a household where, where Serie A was, was like a religion. Uh, so my, my dad was a massive fan of, uh, of Inter Milan and uh, the Italian national team. Uh, so obviously I had to consume that as a, as a kid growing up. Uh, with varying degrees of, uh, of, of satisfaction. Uh, then played football myself, uh, so I've always been quite passionate about it. And then, you know, obviously I wasn't good enough to become a, uh, a professional, so I uh, entered the world of, of finance, um, you know, kind of more through the media technology side of things. But then over time, doing more sports-related transactions, and that's really where I combined you know, my, my professional expertise with, with my passion in life, which, which is sports. And you have came over from Italy to, to the UK, correct, at, at some point. That kind of fandom of, of particularly football and Italian football has its own story on, of mm-hmm. itself. And we can talk about that in a second. But how did you find, how different did you find the, the UK soccer fan from, from what you knew growing up? Um, look, I, I grew up in, in Belgium, uh, which is maybe a little bit of a, of a hybrid between Italy and the, and the UK. Uh, but, but I would say that um, the, there, there is a lot of passion in both countries, right? I, I think if you look at the UK sports, it's, it's you know, most of the sports were invented, invented in, the, in the UK. So there's a lot of tradition. There, there is a lot of 
passion around that. A lot of the local communities are, are built around the local uh, sports teams, be it football, rugby, cricket, uh, etc. I think in, in Italy, um, you know, like, like with everything in life there, there is just a lot of volatility, a lot, a lot of passion, and it just takes over a lot of the rest of, of life, I would say, <laughs> whereas maybe in, in the UK, it's a bit more segregated. Uh, so I think in, in, in Italy, perhaps it kind of like permeates into other aspects of societies a, a, a little bit, a little bit more, uh, I would think. And how are you coming to terms with with, with um, Italy's recent performances or, or maybe lack of, um, and the World Cup particularly as an Italian? How how is it? I, mean, I know this. I, I, <laughs> I, I, the reason I ask is I, I'm from Wales, and um, we may get to the World Cup. We may not. Yeah. There are a couple of a couple of games, but we're not used to being there at all. Italy is kind of has to be one of the the, the, the kingpins of, of 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 global football. How is it for you as a fan? Um, it's obviously very frustrating, but in, in a way, it doesn't surprise me. So I, I think it, it's a perfect definition of, of Italy. So we perform when people least suspect it, and then when people expect us to perform, we don't really don't really do it. Um, so I, I think it was a little bit of a, a psychological collapse after the success of the of the Euros, the squad being tired, uh, and you know, also then I think fear started to kick in. A little bit because on no reason why they shouldn't have um, qualified, but it has happened before. Uh, you know, Italy lost to to Korea famously at the World Cup. Uh, obviously, a couple of years ago, didn't make it as well. Although it was against Sweden, now this was obviously uh, the complete opposite from the performance at the uh, at the Euros, where nobody expected Italy to do well, uh, but they ended up winning at, at Wembley. Um, so yeah, I know I still have to get over it a little bit. Let, let, let's dig into that a little bit more because you, um, as you say, you you are a fanboy of Inter Milan. Um, you're also a world class financier, and you've had the chance over the last um, couple of years, certainly the last six months, to see your own club uh, under the bonnet uh, with your finance hat on. You were advising some people looking at uh, buying the club. Uh, in telling us about what you found under the bonnet, uh, tell us that in the context of what we know is happening and always has happened in Italian football, heavily dominated by politics, heavily dominated by unusual player uh, trading gains that not really ke- clear where they come from, a lot of debt, a lot of over leverage, um, lack of young t- players coming through. Whichever way you want to take it, as a financier or as a fan, it's not looking good, is it, Fausto? It's not in the best of health. Um, no, it isn't. Uh, but I, I think there are some some fundamentals there upon which you can can build. Um, I think football is changing. I think Italy has missed out massively on a club level over the past 20, 25 years. If, if you think about the, the Premier League 30 years ago, pre-Sky coming, coming in here, Free Scudamore taking taking control, uh, you know the, the picture wasn't rosy either, and they no, made they no, made wasn't. they made they made some fundamental changes around um, infrastructure, around the formats, around fan behavior as well that were just not acceptable at, at that point in time. I, I think Italy 
needs to needs to change. Uh, as you know, Italy is a very complicated country, and they don't like other people to tell them <laughs> what, what, what what to do no. and, and just do no. just do a copy paste of what has been done in in Spain or you know in, in other countries. Uh, but but I think they are confronted with reality, right? And, and that comes in various dimensions, right? Financially, now performance wise, given where the national team is also at a at, at a club level um, you know Italy hasn't won a Champions League since Inter Milan in 2010 which was kind of 10 yeah, yeah which was all you know a little bit of a dead fuel Moratti uh, obsession at, at that point in time right because already before uh, the, the picture wasn't that wasn't that rosy so I think it needs a, a bit of an internal catalyst I think what is happening, though, what I'm seeing is that there's more and more sophisticated capital that's moving into Serie A. I think over time, that should start to form more of a consensus in terms of running things in a different, in a different way. Right? And that, that can go through how do you actually manage the league, stadium infrastructure, finances, um, you know, reliance on player trading, you know, investment into into youth academies, all, all these things, because you know it's just not acceptable that, for example, the international rights of La Liga are three x of, of of the Italian rights. I mean, you you've grown up as well with, with all yeah. the Italian successes. I mean, it just it just doesn't make make a lot of sense if you look at it objectively. So there is a lot of money that's being sucked out of the league just because of local inertia. But, but Fausto, yeah, yeah. I mean, we had um, we had the seven 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 guys, Giles and I had them on um, a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. and obviously they they are one of the people you're talking to. Sophisticated investors, uh, read AKA Americans, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and 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 I think you were you were advising Americans on on Inter Milan. Um, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. That ultimately, one day there'll be enough of them to to get the league at the mm-hmm. centre strong enough. I, I I'm not sure, and the reason I'm not sure, Fausto, is because it's like anything in Italy. Politics is utterly dominant. You know, people don't realise in other countries, but but politics in Italy is an octopus that goes through. Everywhere, you know, from the, the, the ability to, to, to build a new stadium, from, you know, who gets the rights to broadcast and uh, how you manage to uh, control your, your fans or not, as the case may be. I'm not as optimistic as guys like you and Gabriele Marcotti are that they think, you know, it's been it's on the up, it's up, on the up trend now and, and everything's going rosy. I, I still think it's got a long way to go down because, frankly, I don't know what your view is, I think the media rights are overvalued. I think Italy got lucky that the zone came in at this time. I don't think they're making a lot of money out of that. Paris is going to kill them. Um, and then what happens if the zone disappear again? So I I think it's a hard slog. Somebody asked me the other day, um, I want to buy an Italian football club. Um, would you do it? And I just said what I'm saying here now. I said, if it was my own money, no. If somebody wants to put a lot of money in and they need an advisor and I can get a free ride and there's some carry, absolutely. Am I wrong? But I think I think it depends, right? I I, I don't see I don't see a reason why you know media rights in, in, in France 
uh, or, or Spain, you know, international rights should be valued more than than the Italian rights over over the long over the You're long right term, on that. Right? They're all overvalued, right? <laughs> and so uh, it really comes down to building a compelling product for, for the consumer, right? And and I think Italy more than some other countries has has very good fundamentals there. It has has the history, has amazing cities it really has a track record of of winning including the national team that that those are your fundamentals upon which to build now is there inertia are stadiums old is there racism in in, in the stadiums would you take your own family yeah. uh, to the stadiums probably not but i think these are things that can be addressed over the medium term not not immediately but it needs willing actors within that ecosystem that that do that right i mean you know better than me if you go to a league meeting in italy it will be dominated by a number of of individuals right that are, are very old school and you know you would hope that there would be a, a generational shift happening like it has happened in um, in the premier league for example right i mean you had a a lot of local local owners there, and obviously over time it became too expensive for them. They weren't sophisticated enough, and they need things needed to to change just by by sheer necessity. So I, I think that will happen in Italy. You know, there's obviously a a very complex Italian political and social and social ecosystem uh, that, that that basically make things difficult. But it, it it has to happen. I think there's enough people that want to push it forward. So I'm I wouldn't say I'm super optimistic, but I'm not. I would say uh, completely negative about it either. I think there is I think there is scope to change. Obviously, it's it's uh, it's five to twelve. Faso, you <laughs> you talk you talk about the, those those challenges. Would that be true? Therefore, of I mean, we see CVC. Um, in in France, in Spain, in rugby, mm-hmm. they're they're they're, par- they're piling in. Mm-hmm. Um, not so, not so much in Italy. Mm-hmm. Is that is that the same problem? Is that related? Uh, I mean, there was a. I mean, as as you know, there was a process there before Spain and before France, right? I, I think that clubs couldn't couldn't agree, and and there was also uh, at the time a very uh, important issue, which was which was a Super League, right? Which made it very difficult for the larger teams to actually agree on a, on a structure, right? And, and so obviously there was visibility once the Spanish process kicked off or the French process kicked off, and and so the risk of that Super League was a lot lower. So an Inter Milan, a Juve, a Milan just couldn't really sign up to to, to an Italian private equity deal, whilst the Super League was a real possibility Fausto um let's let's stay on that a little bit and uh, you as a finance guy what what do you think put yourself on the other side of the table now what do you think somebody like CVC is trying to do in what it's doing and in investing in sport it's mainly at the league level it's at the governing mm-hmm. body level mm-hmm. um as a financier, where are they going to get their money back? Is it operational improvements? Is it through leverage? Is it um, getting better governance? Or is it my view, which is it's just a re-ratings play compared to American valuations? I think it's a combination of all of those factors. But I think if you would go through their investment uh, committee memos, I mean, you, you would see all of, all of that. I mean, it's it's not only CVC that, that's looking at 
at, at the space and investing at the, at the league level. Uh, there's a number of other private equity firms that, that have recognized the value of investing into sports and sports IP in, in particular over the past 12 to 18 months. I would say uh, investing at the league level enables you to, to have a diversified exposure uh, to, to the core IP, right? So you don't have to, I think investing at the club uh, can give you more upside because you, you kind of have a double lever because you invest at the league in that particular league. And if you make a bet that, you know, French football is, is going to be on the up, that's great. If you then on top of that, have like a good club that you can restructure and you, and, and you can make uh, more, more money, you kind of have that double uh, that double return. But I mean, staying at the, at the league level, um, you know, I, th- I think their view would be there is value in sports IP, right? It's it's the only content uh, that that is so valuable live, right? I mean, a second later it becomes stale. So for a lot of pay TV operators, uh, you know, a lot more streaming platforms as well. You mentioned that on earlier. I mean, this this is the premium IP. Right, that that's the only thing that people want to see right right now live. Right, other things you you know you, you wanna you wanna take your time. You know, there's been a massive decline in linear television, but sports IP for that exact reason uh, just has a lot of value. So they're continuing to bet on that, regardless of what platform it is going to be on. Um, so I think that's fundamental. Uh, now. They're also banking on, on, on the fact that there is a, a change in governance and that the old way of doing business is long gone, that there needs to be more professional management, there needs to be more coordination at the, at the league level. I mean, Inter Milan should not be competing against Juventus, right? And they, they should be working together to, to make the pie bigger. Right? And I think that is a, that is a bet that, some of these private equity firms are, are taken as well, where they come, come in, they can kind of try to create value, make people see that there is a massive um, opportunity in connecting the dots and, and working together in, in, in years to come. Uh, and, then, and then finally, they can be also, because given there's so much money available, you know, they can also be helpful from, from an infrastructure point of view. They can really... Uh, create best best practices, helping them on, on these special projects in order to make this better product that will then further drive the media rights. Fausto, um, I, I hear you. I, I, there's nothing I don't agree with there. But I, I would say this. Um, I, I've noticed a little bit of a difference um, in big finance in the last, last six months, nine months uh, in sport. I think that strategic thinking was there and, prob- and, and, and probably still is there. But what I'm seeing a lot more of now is what I would call opportunistic vulture financing, you know, which is basically you're, you're stuffed. You, you, you don't have any capital. You don't have any money. Um, and now there's a war and inflation and interest rates getting higher. Um, I tell, I'm, I'm referring, obviously, to the Spanish CFC, CVC deal, mm-hmm. which one could say is nothing more than an invoice factoring and a very juicy one for CVC. Mm-hmm. Would that be would it be wrong to say that that they've changed a little bit and it's more tactical and less strategic? I mean, CVC is not really in the business of vulture finance, right? I mean, it's 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 a, it's a more classic. 
private equity house, right? So they should be, they, yeah. yeah. So they, they they see the value of of Spanish football. Now, how how they finance that? Obviously, that that's done in a uh, in in a sophisticated way and creates higher IRRs. But it's not something that somebody else wouldn't wouldn't do per, per se. So I do think they see value in the in the core IP, right? So that they're very strategic investor right they see that at, at the rugby level historically you've seen it at, at formula one level uh, they've seen it now in in, 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 the, in the french league as well i mean i i think there's a lot of other funds though that are much more credit driven right and that will lend to to clubs or owners uh, at, at very high rates, right? And 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 I think especially in situations where there is a bit of bit of distress, um, you know, the league level financings, I wouldn't really call it vulture investing. I mean, it, it's more it's more strategic. Obviously, leverage plays plays a role, uh, but they are they are on the on the hook if things wouldn't wouldn't go well. Vasco, let me ask you a question. Um, you and Roger are both. Um, I would say Jedi warriors when it comes to sports finance. You're at the top. You guys have the force. Not all of our listeners do, but you talk about opportunity. Well, one of the great opportunities that came from kind of left field, no one was expecting what happened um, with Chelsea Football Club. For, for those people who might be at sort of elementary level, but wanting to understand what is the value in your view of an asset like Chelsea Football Club that suddenly becomes available? Oh my God, uh, that, that's a difficult question because I mean this this process is is quite uh, quite bizarre on, on on many levels, right? I mean just to start how it how it came about. <laughs> so obviously it's an asset yeah. uh, that that's owned uh, by by a sanctioned person. Uh, you know, obviously the situation became too too risky. Launches a process. You know, the UK government intervenes. Kind of expropriates the asset, uh, which you know is, is kind of unprecedented. I, th- I think illegal, illegal. One could say, yeah, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't really go through the normal process of due process. Uh, yeah, and it doesn't <laughs> go really through the courts. And you know, obviously, no. we're at wartime, and you know, these things can can happen, I guess. But you know, it basically affects uh, you know an asset which has like a lot of public interest and, and so obviously draws a lot of a lot of attention and it creates a bit of a of a bidding war where a lot of people get get involved. Um, so if you would look at it from a fundamental point of view, just given the European ecosystem of, of football, whether it's relegation promotion, I mean the valuations that are being rumored in, in the press are, are way overflated. Right, I mean, they 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 don't represent probably the fair value of the asset. So you really need to look at it uh, from from a more U.S. point of view. And I mean, by the way, like most of the bidders are are American here, and and their and their view is European football will converge to to U.S. sports. If you would look at the multiples for NFL, NBA franchises. And they're all like six to 10 times. I mean, at the MLS, they are kind of at the 10 times uh, mark. And in Europe, you look at European clubs, you know, top clubs trade at three to four times. And so 
you know, if there is a conversion, if revenues, revenues, yeah, yeah, yeah. If if there is a conversion to U.S. sports multiples, if a more closed uh, ecosystem uh, were to come in existence, a la Super League, where there is more financial discipline, salary caps, etc., those multiples should shoot up, right? And that's the only way that you can justify the prices that are, that are currently being being rumored for for that asset. Well, I mean, uh, let's let's continue on that because uh, as we said I think at the top you you made a bid for Chelsea with um Mr. Candy mm-hmm. uh, and Gianluca Viali um with Tifosi. Um tell us as much as you can about how this how strange this process which is run by Rain Investment Bank how strange it has been. Has it been done well? Do you feel that there was a predetermined winner from the start? Um, how, how have you experienced this? How has Gianluca experienced this as well as a Chelsea legend? Yeah, I mean, uh, Roger, as, as you might imagine, I really can't say anything about that really at, at this point in time. So I have to state some 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 general things. I'm happy, I tried. Uh, yeah, no, I'm happy happy to call you after this call and, and give you my my, uh, my my real opinion. But uh, it, it's an incredibly accelerated process, right? But you know, just not a lot of uh, of information out there. Uh, so you need to draw your own conclusions. Um, so you you need to to have a to have a vision right that the price that you, you're going to pay is, is is the right is the right price obviously there is a lot of public um, public scrutiny here which overcomplicates it uh, there is a lot of money that still needs to go into the club you need to build a stadium that um, you know was estimated to cost in, in its previous iteration you know kind of the the, the renewal of, of Stamford bridge close to 1.5 Billion. So we're talking yeah. big, big, big numbers. And so uh, it, it is um, something of, of, a, of a scale that hasn't been done in European football in basically one month's time. Right. And, and so you need to take a lot of, a lot of shortcuts uh, in, order to get, in order to get a deal done on, in a normal process. I mean, on the Liga process, in which we, we worked, um, you know, we, we spent five months on that. And and we and we turned every single stone, you know, I don't know how many times in, in order to really come up with what we believed was uh, you know the, the right the right the right price. Um so it is it is something that's very accelerated into the public into the public eye. Um and I think when it comes to Gianluca, I mean he he's obviously a Chelsea legend, but he really cares about about the club. Um he he wants to get involved in a in a project that's that's meaningful for him and where he can add value. Uh, so I've known him for, for, for many years and he, he really yeah. cares. Yeah. And his, his view was to put the bid that would be the most true to the values of, of Chelsea and, 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 and basically reflecting a lot of the core uh, principles that, that the club should have, um, also taking into account the views of, of the fans and the Chelsea Trust. Pete, we saw Fausto, I think it was yesterday that the, the Ricketts bid uh, made an eight-point statement about the kind of things that you're alluding to there. You know, um, consultation with the fans, we'll never change the brand, mm-hmm. we'll never change the, uh, you know, uh, we'll never join a Super League. Um, 
I'm going to ask you now the question from our sponsor, Sports Digita, and it's always a question around tech in some way. We've seen um, when we talk about valuations, the whole theory that um, football clubs can be valued on a per user basis along the likes of a, a, an Instagram or a Pinterest or something like that. Um, when you're looking at these kind of valuations and the valuations you put on your bid, have you ever gone down the, the, the road of, of thinking that and, and try and work out, you know, how many fans do we have? How well do we know them? Can we apply a $7 per user valuation? And that gets us up to, you know, $5 billion. Did you go anywhere near that? No, I mean, if you would ask any club how many users they really control, I mean, this is not a tech company, right? Where you know everything about your users through one single single platform. But I think even very, very big clubs would have users that they would control into their own CRMs in their own ecosystem in, in the single digit millions, right? So that is conceptually something that you could try to sell, but in reality, you don't really have that. And, and that was proven a little bit by the Barcelona Spotify deal where the number was 3 million, I think. Um, although, right, yeah, 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 probably... exactly, exactly, exactly. So, right, so does that, does that, so coming back to the whole play about what do you want to do if you want to buy a football club, mm -hmm. surely the first thing, the only thing you want to do in terms of co commercial side is make a massive investment to take those casual fans that live in social media and they're over a billion in, in many mm -hmm. clubs' decks and, 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 and try and get at least a conversion to your owned and operated of 50%. And then you can play that valuation game, Fausto, can you not? I think it will just take a lot of a lot of time, right? I mean, at the end of the day, these are these are businesses that have existed in some cases for more than more than a hundred years, and that should generate cash flows at some point in time, right? Which, in my view, is still the way to value the value of business. Uh, so I, I think these these clubs need to yes think about how do we you know improve the top line, how do we build a fourth revenue stream, i.e. digital, right? But then, you know, really think about financial sustainability and, re and really driving EBITDA over, over the years, right? I think that's how you drive value going forward. And I think by just doing that, you, you can definitely increase, you know, the enterprise value meaningful, uh, meaningful uh, times over over the course of the next five to ten five to ten years. So I, I don't think you need to reinvent the way that you value business clubs. I think you need to reinvent how you basically run run the operations. But but doesn't it frustrate you? I mean, we're frustrated. We talk about the the, the value of fan data as the, the the kind of the new elixir for the commercial landscape of sport. Why does it need to take a long time? It doesn't. You can plug your fans in, you can get that data and start re repricing what it is that you, your engagement to fans. Doesn't it frustrate you as someone who knows what the mm -hmm. answer is that still at people wearing blazers who love to be in the box at the front, drinking a nice sharp Chardonnay and looking down on the, the fans in the terraces, but actually not realising the true potential of what they're sitting on? Um, I, I think more and more people probably do, right? I, 
I, I, but you know, these clubs are living organisms, and it takes it takes time to to also change people within these organizations because you might be or fire them or fire them. Yeah, maybe but, you know, like hmm. you know, it's quite expensive, uh, you know, especially in, in Italy or France or in Spain to fire everybody, <laughs> but. Uh, so you need to gradually change those organizations. You need, you need to educate them. Uh, but what I've, what I've seen, because, I mean, when, when I started to work in this industry, I saw the same thing. I was like, look, these, there's so much potential. Why doesn't that change overnight? But then you go into uh, these clubs and people live week to week, right? Game, game to game. Uh, and yeah. what, what drives yeah. results, not just on the pitch, but also financially is what happens on the pitch. Right. So that's why there's so much focus on, on, on that area. And that's also why player trading takes so much time. I mean, the number, the number of buyers that I've seen over the years that said, look, the player trading side, you know, I'm not going to get, yeah. get involved. And this is just, you know, this is not operating. And, and then they all get caught up on it because it's all about winning at the end of the day. And, and they think what gives them an edge then is the, is, is the player trading, uh, which is super volatile, can destroy a lot of value, and it does for, for a lot of people. But it is kind of the core operations of a club is really getting the balance of the squad right uh, and, 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 and trying to make money so that you can free up capital uh, to buy to buy something somebody else. Fausto, um I want to ask you something else, which is linked to Giles's question. And I'm going to give you and Tifosi credit here for the vision you had around the um, the bonds and, and selling the bonds to the fan retail basis. Mm-hmm. You know what, mate? You know, r- r- wind that forward three, four years and you change the word bonds to NFTs and tokens. Mm-hmm. Um you know, if if we consider sport and football to be the ultimate community businesses, and you thought that was a way to to, to finance the club with bonds, um, I don't think we're that far away now with what you were doing and what um, they pull my leg here for calling it this, but uh, bear with me, DAOs, DAOs in the, in the metaverse. Um, I think your time is going to come that that is the way that the certainly the longer tail of sports organizations are going to be financed. It will be with the kind of platform that you were working on four or five years ago. Yeah. Look, I, I, I agree with you. Um, so I, I think there is a, a massive opportunity out there for, for a lot of these clubs to, to, to really go after an untapped source of capital um, and which is more, more flexible, which uh, has the value of their brands really embedded into, into the core uh, product. Because what you see now is that, you know, the top, the top clubs will have access to institutional capital or have owners that can really foot, foot the bill. Uh, but below that, it, it's a little bit of a, of a wild west, right? And so the, there needs to be a more systematic way, I think, of raising capital. And, and I think doing that, you know, by, by using you know, blockchain technology, kind of opening up the borders worldwide to this huge audience uh, that's out there, uh, I think makes total sense. Well, so there's a, there's a couple of things going on in the world right now. Things have changed. Obviously, we had, we've had COVID or COVID still is with us. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but the financial um, upheaval, the tectonic plates are churning again. Yes. First question, is there as much capital out there um, as there was in sport? And secondly, if you were to roll the dice and look at other sports, mm-hmm. is there anything, any of the other sports out there that you rub your hands with with glee, thinking that might be a good punt and a good opportunity? Uh, yeah, I, I think on, on the... On, on, on the current uh, crisis, um, you know, there's still so much capital out there. I'm just, I'm just amazed uh, how much capital there is out there how, how, you know, from an institutional point of view. I obviously think that retail-wise, given, given inflation, um, you know, things might become a bit, bit more tricky. But, uh, but there is just so much capital uh, sitting in in these private equity funds and these asset managers and in these credit funds, so I think they need to deploy that. They have a mandate there. They will they will do it, and I think sports, like many other industries, will be uh, a beneficiary of that. I mean, I think sports over the last two years, I would say, has has become a an asset class uh, in, yep. in in itself, and it's For sure. and it's attracting this this institutional invest uh, investment. So I don't think that will. That will really that will really change, um, to be honest. Then, in terms of other sports, um, there's just a lot of fragmentation. I think in other sports, if, if you look at at sports like like tennis, for example, or, or, or cycling, I mean, these are sports that have a high level of engagement. Literally, have hundreds of millions of fans all over the world. But if you look at the the monetization of those sports, they are literally in the in, in the stone ages, right? Just because they have haven't gotten their the, the business model right, they're kind of fighting between each other. Uh, there is this fragmentation from a calendar uh, p- point of view. They have like different distribution platforms. Um, so I think those are top of my head the two sports where I think over the next three to five years, if you could go in there, invest, you know, kind of streamline operations, calendars, uh, build, build a, a, a better understood brand and value proposition, uh, th- th- there would be a lot of value, I think. We were, uh, Fausto, on that, we were at the top of the show talking about the PTO, which is the Professional Triathlete Associ- uh, Organization that was set up afresh by Sir Michael Moritz, you know, of Sequoia. Yeah. Um, and, and it's the same thing as what you said, you know, there's a lot of communities that their model is wrong. The people running them are wrong. Um, and, 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 you know, my, my view is always ultimately the finance will dictate how, you know, these things change because who pays the piper calls the tune. But, you know, like you say that there's a lot of capital out there, but my, my question to you is, will it have the same cost as it had 12 months ago or are rising interest rates going to make it more expensive, harder to roll over debt, make, um, you know what I mean? You know where I'm going with that? Yeah. No, yeah. I think, you know, technically if inflation goes up, you know, the, the cost of capital should go up, um, as well. So, uh, you know, like uh, will get more, more, more expensive. I, w- I would say. However, I, I don't think the, you know, the the ability to deploy capital in at scale will will change, right? And I think, in fact, competition, I think, is increasing, which you know might might offset some of that inflationary pressure as, as well. There's just, I mean, if you if you look at sports, more a and more, wall of money. So the, you're basically saying it's a wall of money. Yeah. 
yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, compared to 12 months ago, there's a lot more people, smart people, looking at looking at sports. I mean, how many? I mean, well, Roger, you know, yeah. like how many people are not trying to build a a football platform, right? I mean, buying various clubs and putting them together, trying to create synergies. Back yeah, by the multi club thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, and this is at least I don't know seven or eight that I know that are trying to do it. Yeah. Um, you know, Fenway were kind of the first ones that were trying to com- to combine it, and then gradually you just see more and more people wanting wanting to do it. Why, why is that? Because they also find the money to be able to do that. But you know, my own view of this, Fausto, and and you know, I think I've said this even to seven 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 when they came on. I certainly say it privately. Um, I think people underestimate how difficult it is to manage a football club. Yeah. Just, I, I fully agree, Roger. I fully agree with you. Yeah, it's and if you've got five or six, I think it's a way to an early grave. To be honest, there's easier ways to make money. There's easier ways to make money. One last question mm. for you, sir, because you know you know I'm such a, a fan of everything you're doing. Mm. Um, when you see um, Chelsea, Ricketts say um, we'll never commit to a Super League, mm-hmm. do you think it's dead? Do you think the whole idea has gone now, or? or Will it come back in some kind of institutional form that, you know, through the back door, the Champions League will change the Swiss model? Mm-hmm. It will just be a super league, but it will be branded UEFA. Um, it's not dead. Uh, I mean, definitely the concept is not dead, right? Because, I mean, people are incentivized by by money. I think at the, at, at the top club level, the stakes are just very, very high. I mean, these franchises are worth... Billions, billions now. So they'll, they'll think about ways how they can reduce the volatility of, of the cash flows, which will drive up the value of those franchises. So yeah. they'll, they'll, they'll think about all the different permutations, you know, separately through UEFA. Uh, you know, so that they'll be very creative around how they would, would go about it. But I don't think it's dead. I think it is, though, very complicated given that all these countries and leagues, they move at different speeds, right? And the reasons why they also would do it is very different, right? In Italy, you know, there's just a lot of debt. So it's, it, it's a way to delever. In, in, uh, in the Premier League, it's, it's much more to drive more value, right, at the franchise level, given also the, the U.S. ownership uh, there, right? I mean, in some other countries, it might be more, more political, uh, than anything else, so it's, it's it's therefore hard to 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 have these people agree uh, to to one to one framework, and then you obviously have the fact that it's diametrically opposed to you know how most of the population has grown up in terms of consuming football, which leads to you know a lot of fan resentment and political pressure. So it's definitely not easy, but uh, the topic is definitely not. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not bad. <laughs> Fausto, I couldn't let this opportunity of speaking to you go away. I, I have to offer you my congratulations. You're probably aware, I hope you are, that in another sport, rugby union, your country, Italy, beat my country, uh, Wales, in Cardiff uh, a couple of weeks ago. So um, I don't know how much that means to you. It meant a hell of a lot to me, yeah. but not in a good way. No, no. But, but yeah. very many, very many congratulations. It was a wonderful way to finish the Thank tournament. Thank you. You have no idea the number of Six Nations games that I've seen over the, over the years. and uh, <laughs> Getting uh, excited about a potential win and then it wouldn't, wouldn't happen. So now this was very special. Uh, there was also an amazing video where they... Uh, 
where they've overlaid, um, I think, uh, Van, I saw Van it. Beek, I see. which is quite special. Yes, they did. It, it's, it's very, it was a, and funnily enough, I say this as a, as a Welshman is that for Italy to win in Cardiff, which is, you know, one of the great cathedrals mm. of rugby union and to win in that way, it, fairy tale ending. It was brilliant for, for Italy and it was brilliant for the tournament. Yes. So chapeau, as they say in France. Thank you. Great stuff, guys. Uh, listen, let's wrap it up there. Um, taking enough of your time, Fausto, you have to go back and sharpen your pencil to get that football club in West London, I think. Uh, so I'll let you go and do that. Um, thank you for your time, sir. Um, it's right in this moment now and on our podcast, you know, the things you've talked about in the last hour are so, so pertinent. Um, and you know, uh, let people know a little bit more about Tifosi and where they can find you and follow you because you're putting out a lot of content now. Tell us a little bit more about how people can follow you, Fausto. Yeah, so they they, they can follow us uh, through our social uh, channels on LinkedIn, Instagram, uh, Facebook, etc. They can just go to our website and, uh, and and sign up there and be part of our regular newsletters and and, and content about the industry. Perfect. Thank you so much and look forward to see you very soon. Excellent. Thank you. Well, Giles, what did you think? Uh, I thought we covered a lot of ground there. Um, Stuff that is very important these days. Uh, I just think he's one of the most measured guys around. Big finance, a bit bit like Jerry and some of the other guys we've had on. Super smart investment banker types with a huge amount of EQ. That's what I think anyway. There seems to be a, a, a sort of type, uh, an are you not entertained type who comes on, who, if you like, um, reinforces the theories that you, Grant, and I are trying to introduce into our industry. But there, it's easy for us to talk about it. These are the people who are doing it. I, I was fascinated um, by his surmise, which is that these big rights holders need to know their fan data and don't. I thought he would get. I thought he let them off a bit lightly. Myself involved with he's some of the com- diplomatic. He's diplomatic. He, he's diplomatic, as you know. Pump Jack Data Works is one, but there are others out there who make it their business to try and help rights holders to basically pull in all of their fan data in order to monetize, in order to make more money. Um, they come in peace. It's worth listening to all of these companies, and still the rights holders. They they sort of hang doggedly onto their blazers and ties and hope that the old days will return. I'm I'm being harsh. It has changed a lot, but it it doesn't need to wait five years. This revolution, it really doesn't. Well, you know, and 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 you know, whilst it's not uh, Nick Cogan's and and you know, other brands are available. Um, it wasn't a wonderful to to see um, two circles and FIBA uh, do exactly that and get get this uh, show on the roads. Um, more and more, we've done it. And we've said it the last two or three weeks, but it's been bubbling under for three years. This idea that unless you know your fan, you cannot aspire to fan user-led valuations that are so prevalent in the rest of the media and tech sector. So, ergo, intellectual logic: you want to get a bigger valuation you start investing in your fan data because the ROI in the medium and long term is going to be through the roof. I'm into that. Good stuff, Captain. Um, listen, let's um, let's wind up by telling everybody to rate and review the show. Did MD come back to you the last time? Uh, no, with your do you not? Offer? Uh, no, not a single person wants to have lunch or dinner with me. So I'm, I, I'm not entirely surprised. I'm not sure it's the best. <laughs> it, it may not be the best offer in West London, but what I can do 
is to tell our listeners is that the captain's table is returning. The captain's table is wonderful, returning. The Reeve Gauche, the Reeve Gauche is out of the dry dock, going back into the water, and I think a show will be out around about twenty third, twenty fourth of April, um, with the chief executive officer of the Ryder Cup, Guy Kinnings, where we'll be carrying on uh, talking in a slightly nonsensical way, in a piratical way, about his own love of sport. So be sure to look out for that. And uh, in the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at GilesMorgan71. May I ask, um, is that the a new sponsor that's, that's, that's joining the Capitals table? Well, you're very good. You're very good. Um, you're so commercially sharp. As I'm a sort of but... an old lush like me, I completely forgot. Yes, Loch Lomond Whiskies, the the iconic brand that makes the finest malt whiskies. They're coming in to do another show, which I'll be announcing probably next week, um, which is quite different. They decided that whiskey um, on a on a pirate ship was just too much of a metaphorical stretch. So they said, "Could we not do that?" So fair enough. But the brilliant folk at Howden Insurance, who basically are a big player now in the sports and entertainment industry, they have stepped up. And I will be selling insurance policies, I suspect, on my pirate ship whilst interviewing the great (laughs) and good from the world of sport. So it all works. And quite interestingly, I've just bought a red smoking jacket to do these interviews, which are going to be live as a sort uh, sort of little genuflection to my pirate past. So... Look out for that. There'll be social media. Yeah, so it's a Captain's Table Live uh, brought to us by the wonderful people at Howden and a shout out to my mate at Howden, Elliot Richardson, um, who I think will have enjoyed Fausto today and the talk about per fan valuations and vertical integration. Uh, As I keep saying, Elliot Richardson is one to watch in this sector. So um, well done to you, Captain. Uh, We we sit here now with... um, uh, Sports Digita, uh, who uh, sponsor the show. We have got uh, Loch Lomond, uh, I'll leave that for another day, and we have got a new sponsor in Howden. Yeah, it's a happy day. And uh, it's nice that, you know, we, we even went to a, a virtual awards ceremony. There were no slappings. Um, it was all done in the best possible taste and, um, and, and very humbling and, and lovely to be recognised. Wonderful. So um, we'll, we'll close it off there. And if anybody wants to follow me, you can follow me at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Roger, till next time. Great to see you. Great to see you. Thanks. <laughs>